This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and my guest today is Dr. Kimberly Cervella Rogers, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at Bowling Green State University. Kim, nice to talk to you again. Thanks for having me, Sam. We're going to be talking about Kim's article that was recently published in the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education, Volume 47, and that article was with uh, Mike Steele. And the title was Graduate Teaching Assistance Enactment of Reasoning Improving Tasks in a Content Course for Elementary Teachers. So those content courses are you know, very common across colleges and universities as we're preparing elementary teachers for their mathematics content. We're going to be looking at some reasoning improving opportunities there. Uh, and I'm familiar with this work because Kimberly and I went to grad school together at Michigan State. So first, Kim, I want to start back there at Michigan State. So I've already given away the location, but what was your experience like there at Michigan State, and who did you work with the most closely? Well, um, as the second author suggests on the article, um, while at Michigan (laughs) State University, my advisor was Michael Steele, who I'll just call Mike. And before I even really conceptualized my dissertation project, he had a research project where um, some of the methods that he was using to study secondary math teachers' instruction informed how I decided to approach my dissertation. So I was kind of a little bit of a lone ranger when it came to my focus in grad school because I really wanted to study grad students' teaching and beliefs about teaching. Because I had this focus on the collegiate mathematics, not that nobody else cared about college math at Michigan State, but when I was there, I really wanted to focus on the people teaching math and math departments, especially the grad students. And there Mm -hmm. weren't many people asking those questions. It's kind of a growing field across the U.S. anyways. And even though my focus was on college math and Mike's tended to be more on secondary math, Um, We really worked well together. That first project that I was describing was a great example where even though the population wasn't where I ended up being interested, the method of going into their classroom and actually seeing how mathematical tasks were enacted and what that meant for students' opportunities to learn really affected what I ended up doing in this study. But other people on my committee who were really influential included Kristen Bieta, who at the time was an assistant professor. So she was earlier on in her career and could really help me think carefully about the interview questions that I ended up using in my dissertation. And then Ralph Mm -hmm. Putnam, he has done a lot of work about teachers' beliefs and conceptions, and so that was a major aspect of my dissertation. And then a mathematics professor, Cliff while um, he was emeritus faculty already at the time, but when it came to content questions, he was um, very helpful as well. So those were kind of the people on my committee that influenced me, and all the other professors in the math ed program were just so helpful. Sharon Sank, and I could just go down the whole list um, with, wi- mm-hmm. with ones that I either had classes with or who served as course coordinators and helped me progress really well in, in my time at Michigan State. Yeah, great people there. We had a lot of our classes together, and Mm -hmm. you and I also had a commonality of spending time first in the mathematics department and then finishing our Ph.D. program in the mathematics education program. And so that, I think, obviously feeds into this study because you did have that experience in the mathematics department. 
and you and I both served as teaching assistants in the math department. So mm-hmm. I was wondering if is that where your interest started in math TAs, or did you already have an interest in that before, or where where did that really start? Yeah, it's a little bit there. It's it's because I started in the math department, and actually before I ever was a TA, um, my first semester I had funding external to the university, and so I didn't have an assistantship, but I still went to all the orientations that were just required because they knew that I was going to be a teaching assistant eventually. So the orientations that happened before my first fall semester, which would be, gosh, what was that, 2005? (laughs) I was sitting in these really helpful, um, packed lecture hall rooms where people were giving advice about, you know, not giving your undergrad students rides home after class and various tips, um, a lot of little things about grading, following a rubric. And as I looked around the room at all these other people that were going to be teaching math in literally like three to four days, I saw Mm -hmm. a lot of like expressions that looked like deers caught in headlights. And I knew I wasn't teaching in three or four days, but before I came to Michigan State, I had gotten certified to teach secondary math. And so I had in the back of my mind, well, if I was going to teach in a couple days, I at least feel like I've done some teaching before now and thought about Mm -hmm. how to help students um, think about mathematics and and been in front of a class before. I've done a few of those things, not that I think I'd do it perfectly, but I didn't feel like totally unprepared. But the people that I was calling my new friends and colleagues, they verbally told me like, oh my gosh, I just picked up my textbook and I'm teaching and going to be in front of 30 people in like two days. And I'm like, wow. Right. And so it just struck me that although there are, you know, course coordinators for certain courses and different levels of support, it just didn't feel like kind of starting on day one that a lot of the grad students around me felt like they had um, consistent quality, formal support and confidence for what they were going to start. So I just started thinking, well, what is there currently in math ed, like in the whole domain of research uh, that could help these people? And as I started to look into that topic is where my interest kind of continued to go. So I really just was concerned about my new peers Mm -hmm. and colleagues and wanting to find some answers. What answers are there out there already and what could I contribute as a researcher to help Mm -hmm. continue to prepare them and uh, build up their confidence when it comes to being in front of students in the math classroom. Yeah, and an issue that rose for you at Michigan State, but it's definitely a national issue because there's universities all over the country who do a similar thing where they have the graduate students in mathematics who are about to teach freshman level or undergraduate level mathematics courses you know, with just what we would consider a pretty small amount of preparation for that. So it's, you know, it's a pretty widespread issue, I think. Especially compared to how we prepare any K-12 teachers that they just have a lot more pedagogical support and obviously there could be discussions about their content knowledge and ways we need to sort of beef that up sometimes, but it's sort of the reverse when it comes to grad students. They may know the math, but a lot of times it's been so long since they even, if they're teaching pre-calc, you know, they learned pre-calc a while ago. So even if they think back, how did I learn it? What might be helpful for students? 
that's only one small snapshot and it's sometimes years removed from the last time that they learned that material. So yeah, figuring out ways to pedagogically support them, it seems like a not just a Michigan State issue. Mm-hmm. And so now you have this interest in graduate teaching assistance, and then what was it that drove you to focus on reasoning improving as the mathematical process or topic that you were then going to focus on in your study? Yeah, one of the questions that would get asked a lot of times at Michigan State when people were doing any type of presentation, whether it was for their actual dissertation or various projects leading up to it, a lot of times someone in the audience would say something like, well, where is the math? So we always were pushing one another to make sure that our math ed projects weren't just ed. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we were a math ed program, and so we wanted to make sure that it was mathy enough, I guess. And so as I thought about ways that I could study grad students teaching their practices, their beliefs, I tried to think about aspects of math that are more pervasive. So if I just looked at I don't know, grad students teaching the concept of the derivative, um, which I actually did in a study before my dissertation. Um, I thought that was interesting, but that's not something that cuts across various content in mathematics. So I saw reasoning improving as basically one of those aspects of mathematics that you can uh, think about as an overarching goal for students to become more proficient at in a variety of mathematics courses. And so I thought that it was an important aspect of mathematics that I could study in whether I'm looking at a geometry course or a course that's more situated around algebra or just something like a bridge course that's actually about reasoning improving. Um, And even in calculus, we want students to become better at mathematical ways of of thinking critically and reasoning through processes and proving why some of the aspects of calculus that they're learning are actually true and will apply in certain situations. So it seemed like reasoning improving could be something that cuts across in that way. I'm definitely on board with that. Um, reason improving <laughs> is something I continue to be interested in as well, so I, I definitely agree with that rationale that you have. In the article in JRME, you give a lot of details on the specific teaching assistants who you focused on and also the course, but I wonder here for the listeners if you could just briefly say who was it that you worked with in the study and then what was the kind of setting in terms of the course and what kind of data did you collect to be able to dig into? Yeah, so the context of my study is in a course where the people who want to be elementary teachers have to take a number of semesters of mathematics, and this happens to be their last mathematics course that they have to take in order to be able to be elementary teachers. And this course in particular is focused on geometry and measurement, so obviously it would have some reasoning improving, so it gave me a context to see a specific undergraduate course, the population being future elementary teachers, where reasoning improving is specified in the syllabus as an important goal of the course, as something they want these future elementary teachers to be able to become more proficient at. So here's the course context, and then the people teaching it, sometimes the various sections of this course, because there's multiple in each semester, sometimes they're taught by maybe one faculty member and the rest grad students, or some combination of math grad students and math ed grad students. So the particular Mm -hmm. semester that I was collecting data, there happened to be all the sections were taught only by grad students, and all the grad students who were assigned to teaching the course 
agreed to volunteer for my study. So that was super helpful because I didn't have any funding, I didn't have any money to incentivize, I just had my friendly face and saying, hey, will you participate? <laughs> it would be super helpful. And by participating, mm -hmm. what that meant is that they had to be open to letting me go into their classroom multiple times. I thought that since each of these classes were three credit hour classes, it would make sense to not just see them once in a single semester, but to actually see how reasoning improving tasks were enacted. Um, it ended up being for at least six hours in each of the classes. So for each of the six mm -hmm. TAs, I saw them for at least six hours across the whole semester in order to see how they enacted reasoning improving tasks. The TAs themselves, it was a great semester to um, ask for them to participate because I had mathematics grad students who were pursuing PhDs, one who was a master's of math grad student, and then two who were pursuing a PhD in math education. So it was a nice, diverse group in terms of what year they were in grad school, as well as what degrees they were pursuing, whether math, math ed, or master's or PhD. It allowed me to um, even though it's still a case study, still just six people, it wasn't like everybody was all a first year or almost done or some combination like that. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Kim Rogers from Bowling Green State University about her article with Mike Steele entitled Graduate Teaching Assistance Enactment of Reasoning Improving Tasks in a Content Course for Elementary Teachers, and that's published in JRME. So you were able to visit all of the TAs for this course and you're looking at how they enacted these reasoning improving tasks and you also identified the tasks themselves as written in the textbook mm -hmm. but I want to go right to the enactments and what were the kinds of tasks that had reasoning improving opportunities that you observed them enacting so first of all kind of what did they even choose to do with the students yeah so this is what's really neat with this course is that the courses coordinated where the grad students were given a list of tasks that they really were supposed to do at some point in the semester, and then a lot of tasks that were like recommended. So the grad students had a lot of choice, autonomy, when it came to deciding what they did in their own classroom. They had to cover, address certain objectives, and there were a few tasks that, yeah, you really should address this objective in this way. But a lot of times where it was, okay, given this set of tasks, you could pick a few to help the students to understand these ideas. So I was able to see them enact an entire range of reasoning and proving processes, meaning sometimes a task would ask students to actually generate a proof. So they would be given a, a claim or a statement and the students had to prove it for themselves. And other times, a proof or an argument of some type could be given to them and they would have to critique or analyze the information given to decide if they even believed the statement or would change the proof. And so using the framework that I use in my study that you can read more about, I was able to see the six TAs enact a variety of types of reasoning improving tasks. So that meant that when it came to the classroom instruction, they weren't only presenting tasks where students had to generate the proof or where students were asked 
whether or not they believed a claim and if they would maybe refine a statement so that it was some general statement and then never proved. They would do a combination of things throughout the semester. Sometimes the students would prove things, sometimes they would just kind of generate empirical evidence that something was true but not an actual full-fledged proof but just enough so they could sort of understand why it might be true and a range of things along those lines. Yeah, and that's encouraging to hear um, because, you know, as somebody working in the proof area, I also really appreciate this full range of the reasoning and proving processes. And so it's sad when only one little sliver of them gets taken in and opportunities given to students. And so it, it's nice to hear that they're at least starting from a place of giving this broader range. Mm-hmm. But then you looked at how they enacted them and the patterns of enactment. And so you kind of approached it from this lens of maintaining cognitive demand, but you also looked at maintaining the reasoning and proving opportunities. So what did you see in terms of the patterns of enactment that the TAs had, and what role do you think the TAs themselves played in that enactment? Were they doing certain things to maintain, to change, to decrease the opportunities for the students? This is what was really interesting, is that we already know from cognitive demand literature that when a teacher introduces a task and then it actually plays out in the classroom, a lot of factors can be related to whether or not the cognitive demand remains high or might decrease. So, like you said, to sort of take a slice of task enactment reminiscent of cognitive demand but looking specifically at whether or not the reasoning and proving aspects of the task changed, I was able to see that actually for just under 50% of the tasks that I saw, the reasoning improving processes that were expected in the task, just looking at it in the written textbook, actually were enacted during the classroom episodes that I saw. So that meant that the opportunities for the students to generate the proof or to come up with a generalized claim or to come up with some empirical evidence, those opportunities that were in the written task actually played out in the classroom. And when that happened, a lot of times there were opportunities for the grad students that where they encouraged this to still kind of be maintained, for these opportunities to be maintained. And what they would do is kind of what we would expect, um, but now we actually, it's not just anecdotal. Um, so what they would do is actually ask the, the undergrads to definitely generate the proof or to make sure, okay, why do you actually believe it? Have we proved it yet? And ask these types of questions to try to encourage undergrads to participate in the reasoning and proving processes. So um, other aspects they did was like scaffolding the task itself. So sometimes a grad student would give them a little bit of a leg up so then the students weren't too intimidated by the reasoning and proving process and could successfully generate the aspects of the task that were asked for. One other aspect that the TAs did well here, or a factor that affected the implementation where the reasoning and proving processes were maintained, was that the grad students actually had sufficient time. So this builds off the cognitive demand literature again, this idea that it wasn't like the undergrads were asked to engage in reasoning and proving in 
a very small sliver of the classroom um, time frame. So maybe in the last five minutes, okay, who can prove it? What do you guys think? I didn't see that in these instances. When reasoning and proving processes were maintained, there was enough time for the undergrads to actually think through the ideas. And so that can be challenging in a course that is coordinated and that you need to keep up the pace to know when to sort of give a little bit more time for the students to think through and actually make sense of these ideas for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that time issue is something I've just been thinking about a lot for having rich discussions at the end of lessons, but also really bringing reasoning and improving to its full potential. Uh, it does really seem like time is a big factor. And so here, the college setting, the way that these courses were organized, allowing them that time seems very important. And that'll come up when I talk about why some of the reasoning proving tasks decreased in reasoning and proving processes. But the last thing I wanted to mention when it came to maintaining was mm-hmm. sometimes when we're working with any um, students and they think that they've explained something thoroughly enough, but with our mathematical knowledge we say, actually, they've only just given me a few examples. They haven't actually like gotten all the way there and proved it yet but how do I ask a question that encourages the students to keep going? You know, maybe the students seem convinced, but the original question asked for a proof, and the students haven't actually proven it yet. They've just kind of, oh yeah, it works in these cases, it makes sense, sort of hand-wavy. When should we sort of press for them to really explain and actually prove something if that's what was called for? So in some of the instances where the reasoning and proving processes were maintained, um, there was that press for explanation or um, to go a little farther than the undergrad students thought they needed to. So the class may have seemed satisfied, but the grad student wasn't yet because mathematically they weren't quite there when it came to proving it or reaching some aspect of reasoning and proving, and so they would press them to go farther. Mm-hmm. So it's exciting to see the maintenance of the reason improving opportunities or the reason improving demand, but there was the declines, like you mentioned. Or if, if about half of it was maintained, that means also about half of it did have some sort of decline. Mm-hmm. So what do you think was going on, or how would you describe those instances? So here, it was really helpful to see that there were two major types of declines in reasoning improving demands. So what that meant is, in some instances, there was actually an exclusion of expectation when it came to the task. So if a task asked students to both generate a claim and prove it, if the grad student introduced the task by saying, well, we all know that this claim is probably true and basically gave them the claim to prove, then they sort of removed that first aspect of reasoning and proving where the students could have come up with the general claim because that was what the original question asked for. And then they might proceed by determining a proof as a class or in small groups and things like that, but they didn't have an opportunity to engage in that generalization aspect because when the grad student introduced it, they gave that part to them. And other aspects of where you could imagine things could be excluded in the reasoning and proving process. So seeing why grad students made that decision, what factors seemed to affect whether it was in the setup or the implementation when um, things were excluded that had to do with reasoning and proving could help us understand how best to support grad students' use of reasoning and proving tasks in the classroom. But then the second type was 
when instead of the students doing some aspect of the reasoning improving process that the task called for, the grad students themselves would end up generating it. And this mm -hmm. could happen because they pressed for more explanation and they pressed for that idea that I described in the maintenance category and the undergrad students just stared at them or just didn't know what to do and in one instance actually said, can you just tell us how you would prove it? You know, actually mm -hmm. ask the grad student to prove it for them. So there were times where a grad student would want the students to engage in aspects of reasoning and proving, but for various reasons, time was a big factor, but also some of these um, ideas that I just described where the grad student would end up generating aspects for the class. So this was different from the exclusion because when it was excluded, it was a sort of a mindful decision to change aspects of the task, either as they set it up or during the implementation, they would change the expectations. Whereas when the grad student would generate it for the class, the task itself was asked in a very similar way, was presented in a very similar way, but then the grad student would kind of do some of the reasoning and proving work for the class. So the class mm -hmm. might end up hearing the proof, but they weren't instrumental in actually generating it. Mm -hmm. Which decline seems like a negative thing, but in terms of their the students' learning, the prospective teachers' learning, that might have been the right call. It might have been like, okay, maybe you're not ready for this in this moment, so I mm -hmm. will show something to you, and you can kind of observe and try to think through it, and then hopefully in the future they would have another chance to try to do the reasoning themselves. You know, it could be that that was a, an appropriate instructional decision to kind of take it over and do it as long as they're aware that they're doing that. And uh, I would hope that as long as later, the prospective teachers, again, have a chance to do it themselves. Correct. And that's the type of teacher talk, like pedagogical step back, metacognitive moment that I would want to make sure if it was my own classroom that I somehow explain to the students, not every time, but if I was teaching that class, is there some way that you know, later on in the semester or later on that week or something, I could say, remember on Monday when I proved this thing for you, now I think you have the tools or now it's your turn or, you know, sort of mm -hmm. make some explicit comments that I really do want to empower them to be able to do some of these things themselves, to get into the, the muck of the mathematics and mess around and sort of create some of these proofs for themselves. And mm -hmm. making that clear for the students would be a personal goal of mine. And when it comes to uh, seeing these grad students with these declines in reasoning and proving, I agree the term, I don't want it to come across as, as if it's totally negative. It's just meant to describe whether the enactment kept kind of the reasoning and proving expectations that were in that task as written. And if it didn't, it's more just okay, it didn't, and here's, here's what it did instead, or here's why, but not like it should have every time, because like you said, the students in the room and a lot of factors about the class itself um, could affect what the teacher decides to do. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier a couple times about supporting TAs as they are instructing or trying to give opportunities for reason improving. So what are the ways that doing this study and looking very closely at the enactment, how has that affected how you work with teaching assistants or how you think that teaching assistants broadly should be supported in their teaching? 
So what's really exciting about my position at Bowling Green State University is that we have courses that the grad students during their first year take. So instead of just coming for a week maybe or a little longer or a little shorter before they teach for the first time, people that are accepted on assistantships are actually invited to come during the entire second summer session before they start teaching. So there's a six-week span where they take a three-credit course that is about teaching and learning college mathematics. And so it prepares them specifically to teach undergraduate courses at BGSU, but more broadly to think through some theory and practice when it comes to collegiate mathematics teaching and learning. Then in the fall, that same year when they're teaching for the first time, there's a different three-credit course that they're able to take, um, that they have to take, actually. <laughs> in this course, the focus is more on students in these undergraduate classrooms um, and ways to engage students in the mathematics learning. But, I mean, these aren't perfectly distinct, these topics that I just described, and so things could apply in either course, but I try to... So I get to teach these classes. Um, and mm -hmm. there's even a third course at BGSU that incorporates technology for the math grad students. So it's a little about technology and teaching as well as technology that they'll need to know in order to graduate with their math degree. So I know most universities don't get to have three classes that do this, but mm -hmm. I'm fortunate to be at an institution that values the preparation for our grad students to teach well. And what that means is that when they go through these courses, I don't get to teach every one of these all the time, but especially those initial ones, the summer one and the fall one, um, that are really focused on collegiate math teaching and learning, I've been able to teach those most recently. And that means that I approach these classes with this study in mind, where I had these six grad students who made different decisions in their classroom. I described some things in the article about them as a whole group, as well as aspects um, sort of looking a little bit more in depth at some of their interview responses and thinking about them there are six different individuals so that means when I have a class this semester uh, the fall course for the grad student preparation course is 25 students there's 25 grad students in this class who are teaching for the first time in a variety of roles so there is no way that these 25 students are all going to be at the same place pedagogically. Their needs um, for their, where they're headed as an instructor at the college level with the tools they already have and the tools that they need both now and long term, it's different for each individual in this class. So based on the results of this study where it was six different individuals who all needed um, kind of different aspects of support, um, what that means is that in my courses, I try to think about how there are short articles that the grad students can read and practical ideas and case studies we can read and talk about and discuss and watch on video sometimes that for some of the people in my class, we're going to be talking about things that they can pick up and try to do in their class the very next day. So we will discuss some formative assessments, you know, oh, how are the students responding in your class? Do you feel like you're getting everyone to participate? And I see around the room, yeah, I just have a handful of people who always answer my questions. Okay, what types of questions are you asking? Is there a way that you could 
pull the whole class, have them do a thumb up, thumb down to see how everybody would respond to a few of your questions to see if you need to go over a concept again, do a few more examples or give them some individual practice. I see these eyeballs around my classroom where they're like, oh, I can ask the whole class if they agree or disagree. That's a great idea. And so I could see how the very next day they go into their classroom and I read in their reflections that they try this stuff out right away. And then there's other people in my class who their teaching assignment is just a little different that semester and so they don't they're not in the classroom with 30 people every time and so they're going to kind of keep these ideas in their back pocket and use them later on. And so some of the stuff we talk about is of a short term kind of immediate you use it right away and other things are to try to help the grad students reflect on where they're at in their teaching and what they need to grow farther. So that's where in this study I had these six different people, the two math ed grad students would make comments like, I'm reading about this stuff all the time, about ways to incorporate student-centered techniques in the classroom to get the students to make sense of these ideas. And yet, when I'm standing in front of them and I ask them to answer these questions, they look at me like, why would I answer it? Why don't you answer it for me? And so mm -hmm. the math ed grad students in the study were trying to implement some of these things that they would read about in their math ed courses. And it was hard and it didn't always work. And so I sort of see my class of 25 students as people like the people that were in my study. People who are mm -hmm. reading stuff in my class and want to be able to apply it. So what tools can I try to give them now if they want to apply it right now? And who later on might get to teach a different type of class and have to use a different aspect of pedagogy that engages their students differently. And so it's really exciting to think about graduate student preparation from the lens of there's, it's not a one-size-fits-all and the grad students legitimately, the ones in my study and the ones that I get to teach, they really want to do a good job. They care about their students. They don't want to just give everybody A's or just grade on a, some weird curve of some kind. Like They really want to give each of their students feedback that helps them understand the mathematics. Most of the people in grad school for mathematics love math. <laughs> and they sometimes want their undergrad students to enjoy it too. And so I try to find ways to help the grad students communicate that passion for mathematics to their students by giving them tools that will help them to pedagogically be very mindful of the students' needs and the students' attitudes and ways to engage the students in the learning. The article is Graduate Teaching Assistance Enactment of Reasoning and Improving Tasks in a Content Course for Elementary Teachers in JRME. Kim, thanks so much for talking about that study with us. And you happen to know Aaron Brackenecki. I know Aaron Brackenecki. And he is the one that I credit for this question because he would ask it at lots of meetings and I always got good, interesting answers. So now I get to ask it to you. If you weren't in math education, what could you imagine as an alternative career for yourself? Well, actually... I had to think really carefully about this question. Like, how would I answer it now? I, I may have had other responses when I was at Michigan State, but um, I, I am really, I, I just kept thinking about how much I enjoy hospitality, providing hospitality for other people. So mm. having people over and in particular having like really good food that usually <laughs> I made. I find that when people show up and they're like, oh, like you made this soup 
is so good. I mean, not that I make everything good, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> they make a comment about how much they enjoy that they have this food in front of them. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I just enjoy doing that. But it sort of sets a tone of, like, inviting them in um, and mm -hmm. encouraging people to kind of get to know one another and just let their guard down, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed doing that, and I was like, well, what, what would be an alternative career that includes that? So as I was thinking about it, I realized that um, there's this really interesting uh, bed and breakfast uh, about a small town away from me. It's actually in Grand Rapids, Ohio, not Michigan. Um, mm -hmm. And I was like, huh, maybe if my husband and I owned and ran a bed and breakfast, then I would get to incorporate that hospitality aspect, you know, making fun breakfasts and maybe some desserts for the people staying there and a warm, inviting environment where, like, whoever was staying there, maybe there would be this awesome living room, kitchen area, whatever, um, people could just kind of hang out. And that sounds more like a career than just kind of making stuff for people that come over to my house. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so if I wasn't doing something in math education, I could imagine providing yummy food for people when they stayed at uh, bed and breakfast and we would probably incorporate something. My husband's a full-time missionary, so we'd have like little specials for when missionaries could stay on certain weekends for less and stuff like that. Yeah, it's I think it's a really good idea, and I've actually had the privilege of coming over for dinner. Um, you were very <laughs> hospitable, and it was good food, I can say, at least on oh, that yeah, occasion. Oh, yeah, we did the steak fajitas, didn't we? And I didn't even know that that was your wife's, like, favorite food or something. Still is. I, I think like... it still is her favorite uh, meal. <laughs> but I also think uh, that bed and breakfast, I think, might have been Beth's answer, Beth Herbalizeman, oh, when she really? was on this podcast in, like, 2012. I feel like it was maybe her that said bed and breakfast. So there's definitely, maybe there could be a network of math ed themed bed and breakfasts across there the country. There we go. Yeah, so we need some interesting artwork, um, with some fractal designs, and <laughs> nice. Really appreciate talking with you. It's good to talk to you again, as always, and congratulations on the article, and keep up the good work. Thanks, Sam.